Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to get a couple of perspectives on the institution of marriage. Second half of the program, we'll be talking with Greg Smalley, Vice President of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. In this half of the program, we're going to be talking with Stephanie Kunz, Director of Research and Public Education for the Council on Contemporary Families and author of, among other books, Marriage, a History. She says that marrying for love is a comparatively recent idea. That marriage suffered as an institution just as it began to thrive as a personal relationship. Uh, Stephanie Coons, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's fun, nice to be here. Uh, so before we get into this idea, that the subtitle of that book is uh, How Love Conquered Marriage, right? Before we get into that, um, maybe give us a, a kind of a, a an overview, just a quick overview of the kinds of marriages there are in, in the history, and I guess even still uh, still today, we talk about uh, so-called traditional marriage that's often debated. We're going to talk about that, of course, in, in this uh, part of the program as well. But uh, you say that uh, just uh, just about every form of marriage under the sun. <laughs> yes. Um, well, it's, it's really quite remarkable how many things that we think of as traditional are actually very new inventions. Um, for example, the one that you mentioned, the idea that you should marry for love instead of um, bear, obeying your pa- parents or your um, groups or your clans or your small communities' ideas about what would be the best match. Uh, in fact, uh, we think that arranged marriages go back, uh, archaeologists think, at least 50,000 uh, years arranged by parents. So. Uh, a lot of our theories about sexual selection and uh, people choosing who they wanted are um, need to be rethought a little bit. But, you know, one man, one woman, actually, in many societies, it was one man, several women. And, in fact, that's the uh, form of marriage mentioned most often in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, there are societies where uh, one woman married several men. Uh, and um, uh, there were also societies in which... Um, uh, two people of the same gender married. One of the things that's really different about same-sex marriage today is that most of the societies of the past that had same-sex marriage um, had people who played different gender roles. And now, of course, we're um, much more uh, likely to share gender roles, to say that you don't have to do something because you're a woman or because you're a man. You can have two people who have the same gender issues as well as the same biological sex and get married. That's kind of new. Uh, you say also that, uh, let's see, I'm quoting here, in China and Sudan, when two sets of parents wanted to forge closer family ties, no live spouse was available one set sometimes married off a child to a, a ghost of a dead son uh, yes, or daughter. Yes, because for thousands of years, a marriage was really about making alliances between families. In the upper classes, it was the way that uh, kings and rulers and queens um, developed uh, military alliances, peace treaties. Um, it was the way that the rich people, you know, in the absence of banks, that they raised, <laughs> that they raised money, uh, credit, got social status, and even in the lower classes, uh, because marriage was such an important piece of um, a part of production, uh, and had and production started in the home, uh, you wanted somebody who had the same skills you did, or who belonged to a family that had connections at the local court or whose land was adjacent to you. Um, Bakers married other bakers because they knew that they were going to have to run a bakery together. Uh, So all of these things meant that 
uh, people really needed to to be make these connections with Qian. And as you say, in China and Tibet and uh, some other places, if you had made an advantageous alliance and the other person died, you would still marry off uh, your child to the spouse, uh, to the ghost. Uh, it was called marrying a tablet. Um, so there's a lot of differences. And in fact, one of the things that's quite interesting is that in the 20th century, when Chinese women began to get some economic independence from themselves, they often said that they would try to marry a ghost in another village because the Confucius rule that when you get married, you marry your you, as if you're a woman, you have to obey your father and then your husband and then your son. They didn't want to be married at all, so they would find a family that had lost a, a boy, uh, and if the family was acceptable to their family, they would ask permission to marry the ghost of that, of that dead boy, which gave them the independence to stay in practice single, even though they had fulfilled their parents' idea for a, a marital alliance. I want to return to a couple of themes there, the you know, economic uh, basis for marriage and uh, the status of women in marriage. But uh, you uh, wrote an interesting article on rituals, uh, you know, the ritual of marriage, how that's changed. And it, I, I was interested to, to read that, um, I'll just read this, among the earliest hunting and gathering bands of the Paleolithic world, and still today among some of their descendants, marriage was a way of turning strangers into relatives. And and you say that at your uh, well, tell me what you did at your son's wedding, which kind of followed this. Uh huh. Well, I, that's very interesting because as I we were just talking about, once you got lots of economic and social inequality, people got really interested in using marriage as a way of excluding other people and of concentrating resources. But in these early band level societies, uh, the point was to marry as widely as possible, so you had the most connections to the most people, and you owed obligations, not only had a much wider sense of in-laws than we do, not only to your, to your husband's or your wife's sister, but to their sisters or cousins or whatever. And so my son and, and his wife, when they decided uh, to get married, um, they, rec- they understood, because I've been around for too long, you know, <laughs> bugging them about this history, that the idea of giving away the child, uh, the bride, or even the son, went back to these ideas when parents arranged marriages often against the will of the kids. So their idea was to uh, give the parents away to each other. And they got these lays from Hawaii, where both of them had uh, gone to school, and they put them around each of the uh, our necks and asked us in-laws to commit to each other. Oh, interesting. Um, and and then the group uh, went down the aisle, as I understand it. <laughs> not in our particular way, oh, but not that yours. was another one that I yeah. that I went to. That they yeah. they all walked together to the aisle. <laughs> uh, and you were in that piece. You were you were suggesting that you know maybe uh, couples consider some changes to the ritual. Yes, I mean, rituals are very important, and, you know, I'm certainly not suggesting that we throw some out because they have, you know, some some qualities that used to be quite oppressive, but there are ways that we can maybe uh, adjust the rituals to um, to embrace the new values that we have about egalitarian marriages, choice marriages, and um, the kind of idea that, you know, for example, for uh, hundreds of years, the marriage vow was that the woman loved, honored, and obeyed. And the man said, with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. But actually, that was a lie, because until the 19th century, when a woman married, the man 
took over. He had control of everything she earned in marriage, everything she brought with her to marry. So a lot of these rituals reflect older inequalities, um, and they don't reflect the real realities that we want and that actually predict the most successful marriages today. By the way, I, I love this, uh, an old German wedding custom, um, where the bride and groom, after the ceremony, each take the hold of one end of a cross-cut saw <laughs> and saw a log in half. Yes, I think that is a lovely uh, tradition that reflects actually how marriage was for uh, thousands of years. You know, the male breadwinner family was a very recent uh, and short-lived, as it turned out, invention. For um, most of history, women uh, were full co-producers in the family and were recognized as such. Uh, even though they were not treated equally, nobody thought that they were not capable uh, and completely competent at helping to uh, earn the family living. So this idea of sawing the law in half to, uh, to prove that you can work together well is something that is a, an old ritual that could be nicely adapted to modern realities. I think the, the word misses comes in here. It has it had a different meaning in, you know, until somewhat recently. Yes, that's another very interesting thing. You know, um, the word Mrs. Uh, did not used to apply to a woman's marital status. It applied to a woman's social status. And it tells us something different about how patriarchy operated in the past and how male dominance, which I think is different than patriarchy, operates today. In patriarchal societies, uh, men were the ultimate boss, but there were hierarchies that class was just as important as gender. And so uh, a woman who was a mistress, the exact equivalent of a master or mister, was someone that lower-class men had to defer to um, the way that women, uh, in, in, in many cases, ha- I think of themselves as having to defer. You had to please their moods. Uh, a lower-class man who ran into a missus uh, on the street would off his hat and uh, step off the sidewalk if there was a sidewalk. Uh, so the idea that a uh, that that so unmarried women could be mistresses and were mistresses in the past. It was only in the 19th century that we got the idea that um, women were were wonderful. They should be they should be actually worshipped. They're delicate. They're gentle. But on the other hand, they're not really competent at the outside world, so they need to be protected by a man. The old patriarchal theory was women are totally competent. They're just conniving. They're totally industrious, but they're horribly insubordinate, so we have to control them. So there's two different kinds of male dominance, but they have very different uh, uh, outcomes. And one of the things women need to realize is that we are not historically people who have been excluded from production and competency and, and skills like that. So you say 19th century, that when this began to change, um, how did that uh, change, that, that, that view of women and, and as reflected in marriage? Well, there's a couple of things that, that are going on. First of all, um, there are some good things, good changes that are going on. Um, people are challenging the idea that there is a, a hierarchy, that some men are be born to be kings and some people are born to be slaves and laborers and serfs. Um, but unfortunately, as that developed in its early stages, 
uh, it was literally all men are created equal. And, of course, they weren't created equal, but the idea was still, I mean, they weren't treated as equal. But the idea shifted from the idea that there are these um, class hierarchies to the idea that there are these gender hierarchies, that men are entitled because there are men. And with the development of wage labor, as they as work moved out of the home, um, there was a tendency for, uh, there was still a lot of processing to be done at home, and there were kids at home. So women increasingly were the ones who stayed at home to do that. And instead of the value that used to be placed upon the housewife's contribution as a real material contribution, that she was seen as someone who just processed the stuff that the man earned. And the man protected her and provided for her, but in return, she was to defer to him whatever her class status and to do the emotional work of providing, of um, making sure that people were taken care of. And this new idea, it softened marriage in many ways. It, it raised the idea that women should be protected. Um, but it had a couple of problems. One is that it meant that any woman who stepped out of that, whether by her own choice or not, who had to work outside the home, uh, was fair game for exploitation because she wasn't, quote, a true woman. And it also meant that even for the women who did, were able to live up to the new ideology, that they had to re rework their whole psychologies to see themselves uh, as these emotional, more emotional, more nurturing, some things that we still actually enjoy doing, but that became almost the whole of a woman's identity. And this is the period, to go back to your comment about Mrs., that people began to, that women began to see them, their own status as the only way they could claim status as by who they were married to. So they began to identify themselves uh, as Mrs. John so-and-so or Mrs. General so-and-so or Mrs. President so-and-so because that was the only claim to status in this increasingly competitive public world of politics and economics that men dominated. If you just joined us, we're getting some perspectives on the institution of marriage, and right now we're talking with Stephanie Kuntz, uh, Director of Research and Public Education for the Council on Contemporary Families. Uh, she's author of several books, including Marriage, a History. So I want to get into the, the subtitle of that book, uh, which is uh, How Love Conquered Marriage. And I want to read uh, just uh, the opening, if I can pull this up. This is the opening uh, paragraph from uh, from chapter one. You, this is uh, Stephanie Kuhn's writing. George Bernard Shaw described marriage as an institution that brings together two people, quote, under the influence of the most violent, most insane, most elusive, and most transient of passions. And they are required to wear that, uh, uh, to swear that they will remain in that excited, abnormal, and exhausting condition commonly uh, continuously until death do them part, which is, you know, it's humorous, but it's, um, it, it kind of indicates, uh, the, and I think this continues today, where the ideal is we fall in love, we marry, and we continue in, in love, you know, until, until the end. Well, you know, it's humorous, but for thousands of years, it's what most people believe, that love was uh, a nice thing if it developed in marriage, but far too... 
um, frivolous a reason to get married in the first place. Um, but, of course, the other side of it is that young people have always wanted to, to marry for love. It's just that they couldn't do it uh, for, for, many, for, for many centuries. And when we first developed the love match, in fact, defenders of the traditional marriage of political and economic convenience were actually as horrified by the idea of the heterosexual love match as uh, as people uh, as some people traditionalists were about the the idea of same-sex marriage. They asked themselves, "Well, how if people are in love, how will we get a, a, a woman to marry the right man? How will we prevent uh, a person from refusing to marry the appropriate person because you they don't love her? How will we stop them from getting a divorce if love leaves?" Uh, and, of course, that is the major uh, reason for the rise in, in divorce after the 19th century, is that people began to say, I don't have to stay in a marriage if there's no love here. Um, so people were very horrified by this. And um, the, the struggle ever since has been not, I think, to give up on the ideal of love as marriage, uh, as a reason for marriage, but to develop a definition of love that is not so irrational, that is not based upon um, a lot of stereotypes about, you know, romance and uh, a lot of the ideas about, oh, well, let's, you have to fall in love with your opposite, which, you know, might be exciting in the early stages of courtship, but is not a real good recipe for a lasting marriage. So we, we're doing something, you know, people talk about how, oh, we, we have such problems with marriage today. Well, you know, when a marriage works today, it works better than couples of the past could ever have dared to dream. But it works better precisely because we work harder at it. We have to work harder at it. So we're really into unexplored territory. It's only in the last 50 years that we've tried to organize marriages that were not compelled to enter by parents, by the state, or not allowed to enter by the state, by our biology, uh, and that were not uh, organized on the basis of male dominance. And so we're trying to work out whole new ways of feeling erotic about each other and maintaining love. So it's a challenge, um, but people seem to still think it's worth uh, <laughs> trying it out. Yeah, you say, uh, and, and you've talked a little bit about this, maybe we could expand on this, it, that um, marriage has suffered as an institution just as it began to thrive as a personal relationship. And so thriving as a personal relationship, that, that's a good, right? That's, that's, a, that's a positive. And, and you also say that uh, many departures from traditional marriage have been for the good, but the same changes made marriages uh, fairer and potentially more rewarding for both partners have made marriage more optional, requiring partners to negotiate more than in the past. And so there's the difficulty, right? Exactly. Uh, um, exactly. So, so maybe we could talk a little bit more about, um, you, you know, how to make marriages, how to make them work, you know, since we have to put in the work. What, uh, mm -hmm. what would you suggest? Well, it's very interesting because a, most of the, a lot of the predictors of what makes for a satisfying marriage have been changing as um, women and men have um, begun to move toward more equality. Um, I can just give you a few examples. It used to be that if a woman more had more education or earned more income than her husband, that was a risk for divorce. 
and you still have people who who tell women that they should hide the, their professional uh, expectations or their aspirations or their earnings. But in fact, that's no longer a risk for divorce. And equal education, even when a woman has more education, is actually um, uh, quite stabilizing. Um, sharing, uh, it, you know, it used to be back in um, is, as late as um, the 1980s and 90s, uh, sorry, the 1960s uh, and 70s and even into the 80s, um, people found that a traditional division of labor, where the woman did the housework, the man did the bread warning, was the one that people reported was the most satisfying uh, to them. They, they felt more loving toward each other. They had higher sexual um, satisfaction in the marriage. But um, Dan Carlson, Sharon Sassler, and other um, people, Dan is, Dan is uh, at, at the University of Utah in your state, uh, have done research uh, showing that nowadays uh, couples that share chores and particularly uh, share them equally and alternate chores so that they each know what the other one is doing, that's a high predictor of marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction. So, um, you know, the important thing now, I think, is that we need to know each other a lot better than when marriage was basically uh, an alliance of opposites. You know, when I interviewed people who married back in the 50s and 60s, I would say, well, what they made you decide to marry? And they'd say, well, it was just what you did to grow up. And uh, people would say things like, well, you know, my husband, he was a good, he was a good breadwinner. He didn't understand my moods. And the man would say, well, I couldn't talk to her about my work, but boy, she was a good mom. Well, that just doesn't cut it anymore. We need to know each other better, and that's why uh, taking much more time to marry than couples did in the past is important, and um, exploring the ways that you're going to organize your marriage and share. Uh, is uh, Historically, uh, marriage was uh, a societal institution, right, uh, by and large for the most part, but, but as we've become... Uh, you know, marrying for love—it's—it's—it's it's, it's become for personal satisfaction. It, I guess as much as so that that balance. Uh, what do you think that balance does? That rebalancing that. You know, the, the you know <laughs> well, the, the societal uh, interest in in marriage uh, and the personal. Well, I think yes. I think well, society has an interest in people developing stable relationships in or out of marriage. Uh, and uh, I think that, that one of the things that we have to come to terms with is that with the rising age of marriage, with the possibility of leaving a bad marriage, uh, you know, and we may be able to save more marriages than we currently do, but in fact many marriages really do turn out bad and people need to, to get out of them. So with all those possibilities, uh, we have to understand that marriage is not the only institution in which we will live, not the only thing that we'll, where we'll be making decisions, the most important decisions of our lives. We have to teach people to operate well as cooperative people in and out of marriage. And as it turns out, uh, one of the interesting uh, upsides of the research is that uh, single people have a lot to teach married people about how to uh, have longer-term relationships because single people tend to cultivate wider social networks uh, than married people do. Sometimes there's a tendency when you marriage to go back and cocoon. And in the long run, that is not the most exciting thing for your marriage and is not the best predictor of satisfaction uh, as you age. So 
we all have to be a lot less uh, we, we have to stop thinking that somehow marriage is a magic institution that will protect you uh, as long as you just join it. Uh, it's not. It's not the only relationship that can be protective, but it's still a very important one to people, and we need to organize it in a different way than when it was the only game in town. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about the, the pandemic, what that's done to, to marriages. I guess uh, one factor is how you were doing going in. Is that the case? Well, yes, I think so. Uh, we're still collecting information on this. Um, we know that, though, that... Um, you know, for, for couples that had um, problems before, like domestic violence or something, uh, being in close together <laughs> for uh, a year or two is uh, probably not healthy at all and, and was not healthy at all. Uh, some couples, on, on the other hand, discovered new ways of collaborating, um, and others found that uh, real tensions developed once they began to realized that not only did they have to do everything from work to uh, household to, to chores to, uh, to education at home, that they really did not have yet good ways of understanding what were the chores and how to divide them. Uh, for example, women who had to work at home complained that um, the children felt free to interrupt them and the man felt free to let them interrupt them, but the man didn't want to be interrupted uh, in some cases. So these were all issues that people had to work through, and I don't think we know yet what the long-term uh, outcome of the pandemic is. I think it was very varied that some couples really learned to appreciate what the others did, and others began to really see the stress and the inequality in their relationship and not sure how to proceed from there. So that's a challenge for us all going forward. Just a couple of minutes uh, left in the segment uh, with Stephanie Coons. Um, I'm wondering what you, what do you tell people? Uh, I don't know if people, you must encounter people contemplating marriage. And since you have this whole sweep of history of marriage, and um, for example, what would you tell your son? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You surely know as a parent that you can't tell your son or daughter very much. So I try to stay away from that. But uh, when it's other people who I may feel more confident giving advice to, I think what I try to do is, is because as a historian, you know, I actually find that history helps me in my personal relationship more than reading sometimes these advice books that, you, that, that provide you with these rules for marriage, uh, to which there are always exceptions. Just understanding that we're embarking on a new social experiment and that we're all trying our best to make our way through uncharted territory. Uh, so it's not necessarily your partner's fault. You might not you might want to change the way your partner behaves, but you don't have to blame him or her. I think that would be, be my biggest uh, advice. And then my well, other one little piece of advice is um, date night might be good when you're first getting to know each other, but it's actually a pretty bad uh, piece of advice for a long-term marriage. I mean, um, uh, it turns out that people enjoy much more going out and spending time socializing with friends rather than just going out and looking each other over at an expensive dinner and saying, okay, what can we find to talk about tonight? Well, very good. Um, we've been talking with Stephanie Kuhn's, uh, Director of Research and Public Education for the Council on Contemporary Families. She's author of, among other books, Marriage a History, and you can find her at her website, uh, stephaniekuhns.com. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, it was uh, fun talking to you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Uh, we're getting perspectives on the institution of marriage today. And following a break, we'll bring in uh, Greg Smalley, Vice President of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. Uh, we hope you'll stay with us. Some more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Today we're getting a couple, a couple of perspectives on the institution of marriage. And we bring in now Greg Smalley, Vice President of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family, author of several books uh, on marriage, including, and I want to maybe talk about this a little bit as we go along, Fight Your Way to a Better Marriage, How Healthy Conflict Can Take You to Deeper Levels of Intimacy. Uh, Greg Smalley, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Tom, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, so we had a kind of a, a sweep of history with Stephanie Coons in the first half of the program. Maybe to look to the future with with you, Dr. Smalley. But um, um, and I want to to start there. Um, you know, increasing levels of divorce um, and increasingly. Um, people advocate, well, maybe we don't need marriage. And I, I, I suspect you're a, an advocate of a, a traditional marriage. Um, so that's where I want to start with you, just, just in general, uh, maybe why we still need and uh, why people maybe will tell me you're happier in traditional marriages. I think that for me, when I think about marriage, um, I, I agree with you that, that, that I think for a lot of young people, when they hear this kind of, hey, you need to get married, and here are all these benefits. I think we try to lay out all these benefits that have become white noise to to a lot of young people contemplating marriage. They kind of yawn, kind of roll their eyes, hurt it. I think for me, when I talk to young people about marriage, I think for me that all of us have this deep, deep longing to be fully known, and and the only place that I've ever seen relationship-wise that that actually works is is within the context of marriage, because when 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 my wife and I, who we've been married for now thirty years, um, when we've made that commitment that we're going to be together, that that we're going to figure this out, that we're not going to divorce, that that safety and security creates an environment that feels safe, that my wife is willing to actually put her heart out there. Marriage is risky. It's, it creates vulnerability to open up and to be fully known. That's scary for someone. But, but I'm telling you, within the context of marriage, it, it creates a place that, that we can be fully known, opening our hearts to do that. When, when we're just simply living with someone, we can love that person, but there's always that, that faint sense of, but is this person really committed? And I, and I think that people then will hold back certain parts of, of who they are because of that fear that, well, can I really put myself out there? And so that, that to me is the best argument for, for marriage is because I want to be fully known and I want to know, I want to fully know my wife and the best way to do that is to create safety and security. And I'm not, Tom implying that just because we're married that somehow now we feel fully safe and secure. I'm just saying that that's that's the very best environment to then work to create that sort of safety and security. I want to lob some arguments against the marriage uh, uh, to you and, and you have your response to these. And I'm, By the way, I'm reading an article from uh, 
Insider Magazine. The title is Why Taxes, Kids, and Commitment Aren't Strong Enough Reasons to Get Married. Um, so uh, taxes, economics. Um, the, the writer of the article here is saying that uh, might have been the case in the past, more economically sound if you're married versus not married, um, but uh, no longer holds. What do you say? Oh, I, that's what I'm saying. I would agree that I think people hear about the tax benefits, the um, uh, other benefits, and in, in just they, they kind of roll their eyes because some of those aren't necessarily true anymore, or they, they don't appeal. Like, why would that cause me to walk down the aisle and commit myself to this person for a lifetime if I simply get tax benefits? And so that's why I say that that if we're if we're really going to help younger people really understand why marriage matters, it has to be in that context that 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 I want to create a place that feels so safe, so secure for for my wife that she is willing to be fully known, and that I can really truly be fully known. That I think that is one of the deepest longings. That, that people have. And so beyond, you know, the, the financial benefits, the tax benefits, I think, I think to speak to someone's true desire, which is, I want to I be fully known, is the way that we can really help people understand the, the true value, the true benefit of marriage. Um, uh, another argument this writer makes is kids. And we traditionally hear that, uh, you know, children... Uh, best environment is 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 a married environment. You know, parents who are who are married. Um, this writer is saying eh, no longer true. What, what do you say? Oh, I say that hundred percent. It's the best environment to raise a, a a child. We have four kids. In in the fact that that my wife and I bring so many different gifts and talents in in who we are as a mom and as a dad, and that our kids all get to benefit. From when 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 my wife and I not not just stay married. The the I think in our culture somehow we've made the 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 true uh, uh, value of marriage is just staying marriage, staying married. And I'm saying that that boy, there's so much more when 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 my wife and I are working through our issues and creating a marriage that we both actually enjoy. That the benefits. Are that that our kids get to to be raised by both a mom and a dad, because of all the differences that that we bring. Plus, our kids, you know, my marriage is what is teaching my kids how to be married, and so a, a part of why Aaron and I constantly are working on on our own marriage is that that we want to create that legacy for our kids to where they know what that looks like. They know what a healthy marriage looks like. And my wife and I, we deal with problems all the time. I mean, our marriage isn't perfect. No one's is. But I tell you, my, my kids hear me all the time say to their mom, I'm with you till the end. And I'm not willing to to just survive in a marriage that, that, that you know, I want something that, that actually that, that we both enjoy. And so my wife and I work at that. And it, it, it does take work to have that sort of marriage but but I just I love marriage as the the greatest adventure that we'll ever be on and I love that my wife and I we don't know what's ever around the next you know the the next bend in the river but here we are together in and we're working together with our kids and and man, that, that's that's when I think of marriage that's what I love to think about this grand adventure that we're on 
You say in your bio that uh, you uh, overcame some struggles early on, and uh, you make a point, you and your wife, to study a marriage book together every Christmas. So that's one one thing. What uh, what else do you guys do? Yeah, I, I think for, for us, I, I, I heard the tail end of, of your last guest, in, and I was smiling as she was talking about, you know, a, almost like a, a, a poor piece of advice is to go out on a date. And, and, I, and I like that because I think she's right on that, that the purpose of a date when my wife and I go out is not just to sit across from each other at an expensive restaurant. It's actually to go out and have some fun. And so part of what, what my wife and I have learned to do is that every day we need to be spending at least 10 minutes a day really um, updating our knowledge in each other. We do that by asking each other, what was the higher of your day and the low of your day? And that's when I get to rediscover my wife and, and understand what, what she faced today or yesterday, and, and, and I stay current. And, and therefore, date nights for us become a place where we're going to go out and have some adventure. We're going to go out and do something. We're going to have fun and laugh and create excitement for our marriage. And so I think our marriages need both. We need moments that we're checking in and in, in, in really asking each other some, some questions to stay updated. And then we need to have fun. I mean, this is, I always tell Erin, you know, she promised to, to love me for a lifetime. And, and, and so I always tell her when she tells me she loves me, that's fine. But I, I want to know, does he like me? You know, to me, that's more important. And that's why we, we read a book every year around Christmas time when we have some, some free time to do that. I want to know that she, she enjoys me, that she, she feels that I'm one of her best friends. I mean, to me, that's more important than knowing that, that she loves me. So we're, you know, we're always looking for new ideas and things to do to, to keep our marriage strong. But, but spending about 10 minutes a day, kind of high and lows, checking out what's going on for each other, and then having some fun. I mean, I think the, those two things alone are going to kind of help us have a marriage that we both enjoy. You just joined us. We're uh, getting some perspectives on the institution of marriage, and right now we're talking with Greg Smalley, Vice President of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. Um, so Focus on the Family website is where we found this article. I want to talk about this now. The The title of the article, What Will Marriage Be Like in the Future? And uh, you're talking about future after the pandemic, right? Um, yeah. So, um, and I asked this of, of a previous guest, Stephanie Kuntz, um, so uh, my theory is if your marriage was strong heading in, you're probably okay. If it was weak heading into that stress of pandemic, probably had some problems. Is that the case? Absolutely. I think part of what people were experiencing through the pandemic is, one, it created a ton of losses for everybody. And so I think about for my wife and I, just the, the losses that we went through from you know, and our friends went through from loss of jobs and health issues. And, you know, for some, my, my wife lost her, her, her aunt, very close to her aunt died from COVID. And I think about even some, some smaller losses. Our, our son was a basketball player, spent four years in high school to try to win a championship, made the championship game, and they never played it. I mean, just so you, you think about all the, the losses that couples went through and, and, and yet for a lot of them, they never really process those. They just kind of hunker down and just, you know, just move forward versus taking 
an opportunity to to really ask each other what 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 was that like for you? What were some of those losses that you experienced? We we can't change those. My son will never be able to to go back and play that championship game, and thus we will never be able to sit in the stands to cheer him on for that. But we can certainly care about how the COVID has impacted us, and and for for so many of us, continue to impact. And so, really looking for how do we how do we have discussions and care around just the losses i think for a lot of other couples you know covid created well again for all of us let's be honest that covid created such a high degree of stress you know from the isolation financial problems job uncertainty just just i mean you add it all up you know homeschooling quarantine kids just all that stuff created such stress, well, that led to conflict, that led to domestic violence went up, substance abuse went up, pornography usage went up. I mean, all that impacted our relationships. And I noticed, too, that I think it COVID exacerbated a lot of relationship problems. I think for, for all of us, you know, in every marriage, we get good at avoiding, you know, it, certain things, and we we avoid them by working, by ignoring, by focusing on kids or social stuff or hobbies. And I think part of what COVID did is it 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 we we couldn't ignore that those bigger issues, and it it it, it made them pronounced. It was like this big spotlight, and that Tom, I, I, that happened to my wife and I, and and we realized that that there were certain. Um, ways that that we were able to stay connected by traveling together my wife's a marriage therapist um and as a psychologist we we go and do marriage seminars well we used those moments that we were traveling together at a new city having fun you know working together as kind of our way to keep our marriage strong well when that went away all of a sudden we're like well okay what now what do we do and and we used Aaron and I used COVID as a time to get help. We reached out to a counselor. You know, we couldn't go into this person's office, but but we joined, you know, virtually and and dealt with some things that had just remained dormant and, and yet were there causing problems. And so I think for for a lot of people, they realized, whoa, these significant challenges that we've done really good to ignore, we can't ignore them. And then it created a crossroads for a lot of people. Do we face this stuff? I think existentially, I think for people, they were kind of like, do I like this person? Do I like this marriage? Do I want to be in this for the next 10, 15, 20 years? And so for a lot of couples, they went courageously and they faced the problems. And they got help and they're stronger I think for others, they they either couldn't deal with the problems or went, this is not who I want to spend my life with. Um, Tom, that actually happened to my my oldest daughter on her third wedding anniversary, which was January 2020, so right before COVID locked us all down. um, Her husband said, yeah, I'm done, and he wasn't willing to get help. And and that was a part for us dealing with COVID was walking with our oldest daughter through through her divorce and and that was so not only did we have to deal with covid but we had to deal you know just with the impact and in the devastation of of that divorce
About uh, three minutes or so left. Uh, I definitely want to bring this in. Uh, you, in your article, you say uh, some bullet points on how marriages will be stronger in the future. And one of those is clearer communication. I wonder if you talk about that, uh, communication. Yeah, I, I think for most couples, I, I think, unfortunately, routine, we get stuck in a rut to where a lot of our communication focuses around to-do list, tasks, who's doing what. It's kind of like we, we have this perpetual business meeting, because it takes a lot, right, to run a family. And, and, and yet, you know, that is not going to keep a marriage strong. People get bored, in that they quit talking because it's like, well, the moment we talk, we're going to have this business meeting. I don't want to talk. And so what, what my wife and I have really learned to do is that we have to be intentional and, and it just takes about 10 minutes a day of exploring the inner life. So not talking about budgets and to-do lists, actually just talking about what's stressing you out, how you feeling, what, you know, what's going on with your relationships, what are you dreaming about? You know, it, it's, it's when I take time to really investigate my wife's inner life, you know, and, and really know her, that that's a big part of what will keep our, our marriage strong. But see, that, that'll never happen on its own. We have to actually to carve out 10 minutes every day. And, and as I was saying earlier, we just we do that by asking each other, what was the high of your day and the low of your day? And that tends to, to keep us then current with each other because we're always changing and and yet I want to keep rediscovering my wife and I think that's one of the best things that we can do in our marriage is keep rediscovering each other. It all takes is 10 minutes a day. Um, I want to follow up with sometimes the marriage is going to end, right? And you, yeah. you, you as, a, as a extended family, you went through that painful experience yeah. with your daughter. So what, uh, what do you, what do you do to help somebody who's, who's going through that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that they really need to be talking about emotionally what's going on, and and that's such an overwhelming experience. They need practical help. They need people to surround them to help them get certain things done, but they need someone who's really willing to just to dig in and go, you know, how, how are you feeling? What's going on? How are you doing today? And, and really go after their heart, go after their emotions and i think the more that that we do that 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 that's all a part of the healing process but that's a years i mean it's taken you know just again as a dad watching my daughter it's taken years to 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 recover to heal um from that and so people need people who are committed to years of journeying with them walking with them you know, helping them practically, but also really giving them a place to to talk about how they really feel and in in what in just you know what they're learning and what they wish they could have done different. All those things matter, and so people need community. I have a friend that says marriage is a duet in need of back background singers, and I think I love that. We need community. We need a village really to raise a marriage. Uh, just about a, a minute left. Um, I want to end where I ended with uh, Stephanie Coons. Uh, what advice would you have um, for you know a couple of contemplating marriage? Yeah, I would say continue to deal with the junk in your own life. We all have junk. We all walk into marriage with a lot of baggage. It takes two healthy people to have a healthy marriage. 
And, and I always tell people the worst question to ever ask is, how do I have a great marriage? Because that takes two people. The better question is, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better spouse? And that requires that, that we all just keep doing the individual work to, to, to keep dealing with our stuff in, in letting go of the past and getting healing from the past. And the healthier we are as individuals, man, it just makes the marriage so much healthier. We've been talking with uh, Greg Smalley, Vice President of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family, author of several books on, on marriage. Greg Smalley, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you bet. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Recreational boating became popular on Utah's lakes during the 1800s, and some entrepreneurs took major risks to make a profit. This week, learn about one captain who even went down with his ship. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In the late 1800s, Steamers and sailboats dotted the shores of Great Salt Lake, promising adventure for patrons and profit for boat owners. Hoping to capitalize on this growing interest in boating, a Utah County businessman named John Dallin purchased a sailboat in 1886 to start hosting excursions on Utah Lake. The only problem? His new boat, called the Mabel Davis, was docked at Great Salt Lake. Dallin's journey to move the boat from one lake to the other would nearly cost him his life. Dallin decided the best option to relocate Mabel Davis would be to sail from Garfield, where the boat was docked on the south shore of Great Salt Lake, to Lake Park, a resort on the eastern shoreline, and then load the boat onto a railroad car. He confidently prepared for the solo trip, packing enough food and water for his journey aboard the Mabel Davis, and cheerily waved farewell to the handful of spectators who watched him cast off from the beach. Utah's lakes are more dangerous than they appear, and it wasn't long before the trip took a turn for the worse. Howling winds and large waves threatened the sailor and his boat. Unfamiliar with the shoreline, Dallin chose to drop anchor and wait out the storm. The anchor cable eventually snapped, and the boat was swept towards the rocky western shore of Antelope Island. Exhausted and scared, Dallin threw his remaining supplies on land and escaped the wreckage. Within minutes of his escape, the Mabel Davis overturned and smashed to pieces. As the sun rose over the hot August morning, Dallin wandered the island looking for clean water. Desperately thirsty and tortured by hallucinations, Dallin wrote a note identifying himself and his final wishes. It wasn't until later that night that workers on the island rescued him. For businessmen like John Dallin, the popularity of boating and the chance to make a dollar was worth battling the elements, even if it meant risking his life. Despite his near-death experience, Dallin had a sailboat hosting excursions on Utah Lake by the next summer. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.